Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Brian Johnson. Brian is the founder of Braintree, a payments processing company which sold to PayPal for $800 million in 2012. He's also the founder of the OS Fund, which invests in advancing genomic and biological technologies and in Kernel, which is focused on developing brain-machine interfaces. And in 2021, he launched the Project Blueprint, which aims to slow and reverse the aging process in the human body. Brian, welcome to World of Dance. Great to be here, my friend. I am excited to be here. We're longtime friends. I'm excited to, to dive in. Now, one of the things you look at is both your chronological age and your biological age. Like We kind of know what your chronological age is, right? And what do you think your biological age is? My left ear is 64. My heart is 37. My diaphragm is age 18. My body's ability to use oxygen is in the top 1.5% of 18-year-olds. Got it. And, using, and that's like a VO2 max thing? VO2 max. Okay. By the way, like if I wanted to get better at VO2 max, like what is the way to do that? My current protocol for that is three times a week, I do four minutes of high intensity training. So heart rate between 90 and 100% of max heart rate for four minutes, rest for four minutes, then max for four minutes. So four by four, three times a week. Got it. So that's only 12 minutes, three times a week. Now it's an intense 12 minutes. Yeah. So 16 minutes total. So four minutes on, then four minutes off. So total of 16 minutes total high intensity exercise. And yeah, like when you're at the 90 to 100%, (laughs) it's intense. When it's VO2 max day, I size that up and I have to mentally be ready because it's full. Well, I mean, like I actually have remapped my associations with pleasure and pain. I love it. I just need to be in the right mind state for it because you just don't walk into it and be lackadaisical. You have to really get after it. Sorry, this is a little bit of a more personal question, but I have trouble like motivating to get to that max stage. And if there's like somebody who's with me, like a trainer or something like, okay, I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it because they're there. But when I'm just by myself, I have come up with every excuse in the world not to go do it. Because in some ways, this is now part of your job to kind of do this. And how do you actually get that motivation to do that? It's kind of like an unpleasant 16 minutes. Yeah. I would say there's two things. One is practical and then the other one is philosophical. So the first practical thing is knowing this about my own mind. I mean, like my day requires an enormous amount of energy for everything I do in a given day. And the only thing I have to do to achieve 100% is take the first baby step in the morning to just start. If I can just take that baby step, I get into a rhythm and I just roll through the entire day because it's all automated. Yep. But the second philosophical thing is that you know, my mind, as you were alluding to your mind, is a rascal. Like my mind is cunning. It is deceptive. It tells any pretty story to get whatever it wants. Like, you know, let's take a rest day. It's, I'm too tired. We, sh- we deserve a break. Like whatever it says. A blueprint is an algorithm that takes better care of me than I can myself. I basically acknowledge this to myself and said, my mind is a really unqualified steward of my wellness. And I want my body and an algorithm to take care of me. But your mind could still override the algorithm. Your mind could say like, sorry, I'm not doing that today. I'm eating my donuts or something. So there's still some sort of willpower that one has to have, right? And obviously, if I had someone with a gun show up in my bed in the morning, like I would be running like super fast and I would do what the person in the gun tells me. But like, I don't have that. I have, my mind can still override it, right? I mean, that is true. There's really a, a helpful nuanced way of understanding this. So this happened when 
years ago, I would binge eat every night as a trying to soothe my stress of life. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. And after hundreds of attempts trying to stop this behavior, I could not. I was helpless. And one night out of desperation, I said, okay, evening, Brian, you who occupies me from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. and wrecks my life, you're fired. And I kind of did it in jest. But that moment, it was just like, I feel power. I feel like somehow making this different version of me and separating the behavior from me. And it broke me out into multiple selves. And so what was interesting to me is then daily thereafter, I could see the biochemical configuration of Evie and Brian showing up. And I could see his inducements of arguments, like the time's coming, the anticipation of binging is coming, the reward of all the foods you're going to eat. And I could have a conversation with him and say, Evening, Brian, hi, I see you're here. And I see you're making these arguments. That was the key thing to the entirety of Blueprint is understanding the psychological interplay of how to talk to self. And it gave me the leverage to stop my bad behaviors. Now I'm perfect at my behaviors. I don't have the same problems I did before. All right, right after this, I'm going to run some hill sprints or something to get back into it. You talk about this like blueprint. I think I've read it probably a lot of our listeners have, it's kind of famous now, have kind of read through it and stuff like that. And there's things that you're doing that just take a massive amount of time. And that's hard for like the average person to do. And then there's things that you're doing that take a massive amount of money. And that might be hard for the average person to do. But then there's a lot of stuff you're doing that's kind of simple. It's like get some sleep, eat well. How do you separate those out? Like, do you think like just the basic stuff gives you 90% and then you're trying to optimize the last 10 or how do you think of those things? Yeah, I think everyone listening can do the power law here. And the first one is counterintuitive. It's not do something positive, it's stop the negative. So just to baseline yourself, keep score and say over the past seven days, how many times have you eaten too much food, eaten junk food, missed your bedtime, skipped exercise, and maybe let's say drank alcohol or smoked or something like that. And each occurrence is a point. And if you're like most people, you probably score on the range of like three to seven every day. And so the first objective is get yourself to zero. So right now, the most powerful anti-aging therapy someone can do is stopping the bad stuff in their life. And once that is mastered, then you can step into the positive things. Okay. And by the way, like that does seem much easier for, at least for me. And for some people, if you're super into drinking alcohol, you're super into whatever, but like, it seems relatively easy just to like stop the bad stuff. Don't stay up till 3am, you know, binge watching Netflix, get some sleep, like, you know, the basic stuff. Yeah. The thing that's psychologically, I think relevant for people to see is many people, including myself, use health interventions as a coping mechanism and as an enabling behavior for addictions. So I was addicted to binge eating. I couldn't stop myself. To offset my inability to stop that, I would try to do positive things in my life. Now, it's not like those things are bad, like I'm trying, but it had a really complicated side effect where I didn't wrestle the bad stuff head on. I tried to cover it up. Okay, got it. So obviously, if like someone's injecting heroin into them regularly, okay, look, there's nothing else you got to focus on. Like that's the most important thing to focus on first, right? And then go do the other stuff. But when you were binge eating, was it just like, were you like a pizza guy? Was it ice cream? Like what was the thing? It's so funny. This is the one thing I've said throughout the years that resonates the most deeply with people is this evening, Brian. And everyone's mind immediately goes to their thing, right? Like everyone's uh-huh. got, you know, it's, it's like totally goldfish or graham crackers or ice oh, cream. Yeah, or, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Those are good ev- too. Everyone has their you know, gummy bears. Yeah. In my household, my partner really enjoyed sweets. So there was always something like brownies or cookies. Yep. 
Oh man, cookies are so chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, those are hard for me to, to resist. Yeah. So there were always leftovers. If you're at my house now, you know, or if we're hanging out, there's nothing to do at my house in indulgent mode. Yep. You're eating in a very short time window, you know, often like in a three, four hour type of time window. And there are a lot of people who eat in like an eight hour time window or something like that. They're kind of like eight on, 16 off or something like that. Just basically means skipping breakfast, which in some ways is like relatively easy for a lot of people to do. Sometimes they're too busy even to have breakfast anyway. So it's kind of a simple thing. Is there some sort of reason why you've kind of condensed it to just like a three hour time window or four hour time window to eating? Yeah. It's entirely about my sleep. So it's not based upon the evidence of the benefits of fasting. Like even though I do fast, my team has concluded that the evidence is not yet persuasive enough to them that we should prioritize that as a thing. Like generally eating with smaller windows are better. But I basically know that if I finish my last meal of the day at 11 a.m., when I go to bed at 8.30 p.m., my resting heart rate is going to be around 46 beats per minute. And if I eat 2,000 calories a day and the right foods, and if my heart rate is that, I'm going to have a perfect night's sleep. But my resting heart rate at the time of bed is my number one predictor for how well I'm going to sleep. Got it. And so the more you've digested your food by then, the more likely you'll have a lower resting heart rate, which will give you a better sleep, yep. essentially. That's true for me. You know, other people say that makes them too hungry. They get a stomach ache. They can't go to sleep. So that's just a Brian thing. It's not a science-based thing. It's just my preference. Sleep is my number one life activity. So I've prioritized my life around it. Okay, that makes sense. And it also like, I found certainly like when I eat late and I've got a late meal or something like that, then like going to sleep is a tough thing for me. My sleep is not going to be as good. So that's probably generally true. Like the closer you eat to sleep, let's say if you're eating within a couple hours of sleep or something like that, it's going to be harder to have a good night's sleep, I presume. Yeah. And yeah, you know, like you and I in this call, I guess most people in our culture doing these late night business meetings where you have dinner at seven or eight, maybe a glass of wine when you're there it just annihilates sleep. Eating at that time and the alcohol, it's a cultural practice that really deserves sleep. Okay, interesting. And so I presume if you're kind of eating in that window, that kind of like 8 to 11 a.m. window there, then it's like the workout's happening pre that window? That's right. So I work out right when I wake up. I'll do a little drink, then I'll take 60 pills. I'll work out for an hour, then I'll have breakfast, which is about a couple pounds of vegetables, 70 pounds total per month. And then I'll eat my second meal an hour later and my third meal an hour later. So yeah, within like a six hour window, uh, thereabouts, the entirety of the food. Got it. And how do you think about, I know you've kind of decided at this point to really get most of meat and other types of things out of your diet. Like how have you decided on what your diet should be? We endeavored to do something no one had ever done before, which is we wanted to measure every organ of my body and do a bioage. And so we endeavored to do this with all the biofluids, blood, saliva, stool. Uh, we did all a bunch of devices. We did imaging and fitness tests. We took thousands of measurements. I became the most measured person in human history. And we said, let's let the data speak and match that to scientific evidence. Now, of course, scientists are going to disagree on the evidence. They're all going to. We looked at the evidence. We chose a path. We went forward. And we've just been iterating, publishing the data each time. So I say tongue-in-cheek, Blueprint is the best health protocol put together in human history. Prove me wrong with your data. Now, if someone actually did that, it would be a win for us. Like that would be the best thing in the whole world. Then you would just switch, right? Exactly. Like amazing. Because we're trying to punch through the storytelling technology of health and wellness, which is now, which doesn't do anyone any good. Humans putting words to this stuff is just irrelevant. You have to look at the data as the only reliable way to make decisions about your body. And one of the problems is that 
you and I are different. We have some similarities, but we're quite different. And how we react to certain foods is going to be different. How we respond to certain exercise protocols is going to be different. And so there isn't one lowercase b blueprint that we all could follow, right? It is somewhat, and there's maybe some things we're all trying to maximize. Maybe like a VO2 max is a good thing for all of us to get better at, but how we get better at it is probably quite a different pathway. You know, I do wonder whether we overestimate the differences between individuals. Like the what I eat on a daily basis has not been dialed in to me as a person. They were based upon population level studies. Now, I take certain supplements here and there to like tune this or that. But if somebody's going for an 80 20, you know, 80% of the value, 20% of the effort, I think there's a lot more mapping than most people think. So I know people, their first thought is, oh, there must be this huge personalized difference. It must not be relevant to me. And I must get thousands of measurements too. I can't say this with confidence, but I don't think it's that big of a difference. Okay. Certainly, at least for the power law stuff. That's right. Now, one of the things that I talked to Peter Tia, one of the things he changed his mind about is on diet. He basically, at this point, thinks like exercise just completely trumps diet. Diet's obviously good, but like if you're talking about the power loss stuff, you know, he would prioritize exercise way over that. And that's something he's changed his mind about. How do you think about those? So I've read Peter's book. Every specialist disagrees with every specialist. <laughs> right. There isn't anybody who agrees with each other, which is why it's so hard for like the average person to follow protocol, right? And this is why I did Blueprint, because if you're the lay person, which I was before this, and you're trying to piece together your protocol by listening to what Atia says, and then Sinclair and Huberman and me, like, good luck. It's a disaster of a situation. Then you don't have the infrastructure to do all the measurement protocol. You're doing your very best, but just like it's a disaster. And that's what I wanted to do with Blueprint is to say, I'm going to answer every single question. What to eat, what supplement, what sleep, what exercise. And then, of course, you can vary based upon your preference from there and you can do modifications. But I wanted to solve the entire thing for somebody to say, here's the whole program for you done and free. Just go. Yep. You also focus on like the aesthetic stuff. So you're focusing on making sure your skin looks good and, you know, other types of things as well. Is that something that like, because doing that like psychologically that helps you be healthier or does it actually make you be healthier? Both. And so if we think comprehensively about this objective and let's imagine now that we have some indeterminate time which we can live, we will have the natural desires to look and feel our best. And that means we're going to want nice skin. We're going to want to have good muscle and good ability, uh, physical abilities. And so we have done everything to try to basically get me as equivalent to a biological 18-year-old. Now, I chose 18 kind of as like a funny number because my boys are 19 and 17. And so every time I do something, like get in the MRI or do ultrasound, I always grab one of the boys like, hey, could you like be my genetic match here? And so it's really fun and convenient. They enjoy it. It's a fun family activity. And then we compare ourselves. And like I'm competitive with them on like so many things. It's pretty surprising. So I have not done plastic surgery. I haven't done things that mask age. I've done things that try to legitimately rejuvenate to a younger biological state. Okay, got it. So even on that hair stuff, like I noticed you don't have a lot of gray hairs and stuff like that. Classic thing would be someone that colors their hair, but they're still like healthy and everything. Like, or if you eat well, like your hair is less likely to go gray. Yeah, so I actually started going gray in my 
early 20s when I was starting Braintree. And then I started losing my hair in my early 30s. So my hair has been like this insane amount of energy to try to keep hair on my head. And so I have been dyeing my hair substantially less lately because we've been trying five different formulations for a gray hair reversal. Our last measurement, we had around 70% gray hair reversal, which is pretty stunning. And so we're trying to fine tune these a little bit. But yeah, we think we've done a pretty deep. I didn't even realize you could reverse gray hair. Yeah. What? So that's something that could happen without taking pills to, yep. you know, interesting. So we've done that. We've been successful. We were not entirely convinced the results are stable yet. We need to see a little time that it's durable. But yeah, I mean, the, hair, the color you see right now is not dye. Oh, wow. So the color I see right now, and for those watching on video, your hair looks great. That is actually just the natural that comes in. Yep. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Okay, so there's obviously the basic stuff. Okay, like get some good sleep, eat reasonably well, exercise decently, get rid of all the bad stuff, don't shoot up heroin, you know, whatever. Okay, if we're just doing those basic things, then obviously that's a massive improvement for society if we can get there to everybody. Like how far along is that going to get most of us? Yeah, one of the great markers you can look at to assess that is your speed of aging, your DNA methylation patterns, It's like a biological clock. They show how fast you're aging. And so the key thing we've been trying to work on is slowing my speed of aging. And so my current rate of aging is 0.69. So how do you test that? Are you doing some sort of blood test and taking like a DNA sample from that or? Exactly. So it's just a finger prick, just a couple drops of blood. And I'll give you the link so you can put it in your show notes. But it's a very easy test. And it's a state-of-the-art algorithm used from a longitudinal study out of New Zealand. And so my speed of aging is 0.69. I mean, roughly, I get September, October, November, December for free each year, yep. where I'm slowing that slowly. And I assume some people are more than one, right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. So of the roughly 2,000 people in the world who have been routinely measuring this on themselves, so these are intense biohackers, enthusiasts, I scored number one in the world for the greatest reduction for my speed of aging. And that to me is one of the most compelling achievements we have. Like, yes, we have other thousands of markers on everything you could possibly imagine. But that to me is the most significant one is because I guess the premise here is you want a ticket into the future. And reversing aging is very hard. Slowing your speed of aging is much more manageable. So to your point, if you start knocking out the bad stuff, you start getting some good stuff in a really nice place to just check and to say, how am I doing? Look at your speed of aging. It's kind of like a single composite number, which is like, overall, how's my body? And I'm maybe a little bit too slow to totally understand this, but like, how do you look at this difference in DNA over time to see your speed of aging? They look at these DNA methylation patterns. So they're looking at the biochemical patterns in your body. Think of it like tree rings. And they express and they leave these signatures and structures that can then be decoded at your speed of aging. So if you look at it on an age chart, I'm currently accumulating aging damage slower than the average 10-year-old. And so as people increase in their chronological age or their biological age, they begin aging faster because aging damage compounds upon aging damage. That's why people you see like 60s, 70s, like they just kind of age really fast in that window of time. And so you're really trying to slow these exponentials. Okay, interesting. And by slowing those exponentials, like I assume it slows everything down, like people tend to lose their hearing later, they get certain other types of diseases. It makes everything better. 
Exactly. That's the number one thing you want to do. And so like Blueprint has been sensationalized in the media. And so people who come to this and they look at me, they're like, bro, it's not working. You look 45. And so it's fine. That's a legitimate observation. What they don't realize is I trashed my body for a few decades. I started Blueprint from a cold start. And what they can't see is how I've slowed my speed of aging. Like that's not visible to the eyes as apparently as my chronological age. The success would not be right now that I look like an 18-year-old. The success is what I've done internally of how fast I'm aging, which that needs time to then show. And so there's been a lot of confusion, like, does this work? Is this snake oil? Because people aren't yet accustomed to thinking around these biological measurements and to know how to think about this new concept. Okay. I mean, you and I, we've known each other for a long time. I've seen, and I remember I saw you in person about six months ago, and I was like, kind of totally taken aback because I've seen your kind of progression over that time. It seems like 100x healthier today than you were when I got to know you and like, which was in the prime, like being a tech founder day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Interesting. I assume the goal here is, okay, obviously you're kind of like your own lab rat, right? Like you're experimenting on yourself. You're trying different things. Some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work. Some things might actually be detrimental because you're kind of pushing the vanguard. So you might be introducing things that are actually like turns out to be bad for you. And then you'll learn from that. I assume the whole reason you're doing all this is to then just like, okay, give the data to the rest of the world so that nobody else has to be on the vanguard. Everybody else can be a little bit of a later adopter. I'm trying to figure out the power law for everyone else. Yeah. Okay. Got it. But to do that, that does mean you are putting yourself at risk in certain cases, right? Because that means you have to be doing some things that are on the vanguard, which some of those things will turn out to be bad, right? That's correct. Okay. Because obviously you're doing it with your eyes wide open and I'm sure there are certain things, okay, you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that right now. That does seem a little crazy or something. I'm not going to swap my brain with somebody yet or <laughs> you know, whatever else it might be. I assume like one of the things that is scary to a lot of people, there's kind of two things that are scary to people as they age. One is like their body has issues. They can't hear as well. Their knees are kind of messed up. They're slower. They can't pick up things. They mess up their back. And that's one thing. And for certain people, that's really scary to them. And then for the other people, it's like their brain isn't working as well. I'm losing my memory. I can't come up with the right word when I want to come up with the right word. I know this person's last name, but it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't get it. Or obviously even worse, more dementia kind of oriented things. These protocols, I assume that they kind of work for both of those two. 100%. And is there a sense that in some ways the brain is kind of very much tied to the body? That's right. When we share these results about whether it be a brain MRI or a cardiac, or we just shared pulse wave velocity today, for example, people's first questions, which is understandable, is how do you work on blank? And sometimes there really are targeted interventions to do certain things, like certain supplements for the brain and you know, for the liver health or whatever. But it's hard to separate, like you're saying, the combinatorial effect of everything, of getting good sleep, of consistently exercising, you know, of avoiding bad things. There's this accumulative effect, which we've seen across my entire body. I mean, like we see, for example, in the speed of aging, you can't just improve your liver and have the entire body slow down on how fast it's accumulating aging damage. It has to be a whole body effect. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of a challenging answer to provide because people are like, I can't do it all. Like I've, you know, I've got blank jobs and kids and like, I can only do a small number of things. So tell me that two pills you want to take to solve the problem here. Speaking of pills, like there's a huge wave of 
people injecting Zempic and other types of things today, do you feel like those things are just band-aids or they are actually good to help people? Or how do you think about some of these drugs that are on the market? I understand why somebody would take that. I mean, when I was in my worst state, 50 pounds overweight, helpless to stop myself, I can imagine if I were presented that, I would have said yes, you know, like anything to stop myself. So totally understand the state of, I would say more broadly, if we're looking at society, we are a society addicted to addiction. We addict everyone to everything all the time. And that's how we're rewarding society. Yep. And so I don't think the answer is Olympic as the long-term solution. I don't think the answer is telling people to work harder or try harder. If you think about it this way, I think we're actually pretty insane. We don't have enough willpower to resist the temptation we have, the omnipresent temptation in the form of food, digital media, our phones, all the above. We can't. None of us can stop ourselves from these addictions. And so I think it's really a societal problem. And Blueprint is not to say that individuals should be able to do this whole thing themselves. It's to point out that we need to build this to be the default in society. And that what we're doing is legitimately harming our ability to be successful as a species. And one way is just to like somehow figure out a way not to present yourself with that addiction. And I mean, this might be a somewhat of a harmless addiction, but I really like puzzles, especially things like math puzzles and stuff. And I had this like really cool app on my phone, which had a lot of dopamine hits in it. And I would love to do these puzzles. And sometimes I'd find myself like I just, you know, 25 minutes went by. I'm still doing like these puzzles and stuff like that. And I finally just had to like delete it from my phone. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't like a heroin addiction, but it was just like taking up other things that, you know, I'd rather spend time with my family or do other stuff during those times. Yeah. Part of the interesting exercise of this stopping the bad stuff is it really is a sobriety test, right? It's like people think they can just stop whatever they're doing, like they're choosing it. And then they go to stop it and they're like, oh no, (laughs) I actually don't have the willpower to stop this. I might be in trouble. And so it's really just trying to draw attention to how addicted we all are. I mean, like, I think I solve my addictive tendencies by being addicted to Blueprint, right? The ability to do these things consistently and routinely. So like, I know how to channel my behaviors in a productive way. So I don't come at this from a place of holiness, just from a place of like, I know if I give my mind a single window of opportunity to act on its own accord, it will unquestionably choose the wrong thing. Even now, it is just an absolute rascal. When you're getting these full body MRIs, how often are you getting them? And what's a good cadence for, you know, maybe not spending someone not who doesn't want to spend like 2 million a year, but they have some means to spend on these things? It really depends on what you're trying to look at. I mean, this week I had two. What's the reason to get two in a week? Part of it's routine measurement. The other stuff is we're drilling down. So the past two weeks we did my heart, then we did my liver, kidney, we're doing spine age. And you can't just do that in like a full thing. Like you have to really dive in on that particular thing. Yeah. Some of these things are standard scans. Others are custom protocols we write. So like the spine was unique. The brain we do is part standard, part unique. We did a full body muscle scan this week. This is our second. So we're looking at my change of muscle and fat. That also includes the liver fat. There's a few others. MRI is just a phenomenal. I mean, so just... I never got an MRI until less than a year ago. I got my first full body MRI and took about an hour and it's super loud and it's kind of annoying. And at least where I went, it was nice. I got to watch Netflix while I was in it, you know, so it wasn't like completely boring stuff, but 
it's not like the most fun thing in the world to like be in an MRI machine. Like, what are you doing while this thing's going on? You're right. It's hard work. I mean, Blueprint is hard work and it's a tremendous amount of pain. Almost everything I do on Blueprint therapy is painful. And I've had to remap my associations to find pleasure in pain because whether it's your high intensity workout in the morning, you're like, all right, here we go. It's 16 minutes of hardcore and also an hour workout on top of that. Plus, I'm going to be hungry all day because I'm only doing, you know, 2000 calories and, you know, like whatever. It's really just this remapping. And this leads people to assume sadness or some other kind of dreary state. But weirdly, I've never been happier in my entire life. And beside like stopping the bad stuff, diet, exercise, sleep for the average person, is there one other thing you would suggest? Yeah, so actually, I did Blueprint for two and a half years. No one cared. And then it just blew up. And I was doing this because I'm legitimately trying to figure out the future of being human and our relationship with algorithms and how we approach that. And so since it's blown up, the understandable question is, how do I do this with my budget and the amount of time I have in life? And so over the past few months, I've been trying to solve for that. And so I've actually tried to put Blueprint in an 80-20 package that's affordable and easy to do. So make it a powder instead of a whole bunch of pills. We've prototyped the whole thing it's just prototypes. We don't yet have market data, but I'm extraordinarily happy with what we have. It is extremely affordable and it would basically, I think, pack the 80% value with 20% of the uh, the effort. Hopefully we solve that for people. But man, this whole thing, you know, like doing the MRI, like I was going to say, like when you do the full body MRI, what we've learned is you can do it and you can do a custom protocol and then you can get a report and it's like typically like, okay, everything's fine. But what they're looking for is like, is there cancer or is there like some glaring? Yeah, cancer was the main thing when yeah. I got it. It's like yeah. they're looking for these major things. But when we have found that like, we have a whole team of radiologists that look at these images because the standard review does not catch the nuance we're looking for. And so we have to write the custom protocols. We have to do custom reviews. We have, it's a really laborious and challenging task. And everywhere you turn, no matter what you're doing, that's why Blueprint is so rickety and challenging and time-consuming. And a lot of people don't understand the value of what we're doing is, but we have to push through so much stuff to arrive at these observations. And then we link it back to diet and exercise and everything else. It's just incredibly laborious. And I understand why others don't do it. It's just, it's very challenging. You and just, as you mentioned, all these pills and vitamins every day. And when I got a new doctor, he asked me to actually cut back on some of my vitamins because he was worried that some of them might be like counteracting one another. And how do you think about that? Like, you know, there could be some like where on their own, they're good, but two together might actually not be so good. It's a legitimate concern. I totally appreciate that. And the way we counteract that is we measure hundreds of data points. You're measured testing. Okay. So you're measuring all these different, but obviously if you have like 60 things, like it becomes a very, very large number of many permutations to measure. Sometimes though, like these interventions and these supplements do have sometimes a targeted focus. Like you're doing certain things for the heart or the liver, the kidney or whatever. And so it's not entirely this huge combinatorial mess, but it does create some interaction problems. But again, like when you hit this critical threshold of how measured I've become, it gets easier to isolate and identify these relationships and not a perfect solve, but certainly better than guesswork. And a lot of people I hear like some people, doctors will just say, I don't want you to take these pills because it's going to hurt your liver. Well, it's like, okay, I've looked at my liver, right? From imaging and blood work and, 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 and. And so we can actually verify whether or not it's doing harm and in what way. And actually not, my liver has perfect markers according to MRI and biofluids. But it's really measurement is the enabler of this entire process because data is the thing that clears out human opinion. 
Now, one of the things I don't hear you talk about as much is just like drugs. Like a lot of people talk about whether it's metformin or some of these other types of drugs and stuff like that. Is that something like you're specifically not wanting to try as much or how do you think about some of these things? Yeah, we're on several prescription meds, a carbos, metformin, rapamycin, 17, alpha estradiol. It's like five or six different RXs. I don't talk about them a ton because they're out of reach for most people. I don't want to play with their psychology where they feel like they're really missing out on something big. It's more important that they can get some good wins under their belt with these basics than be teased at something they feel like they can't get access to. But like a metformin is, I assume, pretty cheap, right? To get access to, like it probably would be available to most people, I would presume. It's cheap, but you know, very few doctors will prescribe to non-diabetics. And so when people go to the doctor and like, hey, you know, I heard this, there's this metformin thing. And the doctor's like, oh, no, no, that's just for diabetics. That's stupid. People who are doing that for anti-aging are just dumb. And then the person then feels all this conflict of like, I want access to it. And why are you blocking me? And so it's all this consternation that is potentially unnecessary when a person's really trying to hit the 80% value mark. Them feeling good with where they're at, with what they're doing, is a really important part of the game. One of the things that is very hard for, let's say, a, a relatively smart person who's trying to be healthy, but it's not like the dominant thing in their life to follow is that, as you mentioned before, many of the quote unquote experts disagree with like what to do. And then the historical thing has been wrong often. So the advice that you would have gotten 10 years ago is different than the advice you get 20 years ago, which is different than the advice you get 30 years ago, you know, which is different than like happiness advice. Like if I want to talk to somebody from like 2000 years ago and said like how to be happy, like they'd probably give me roughly the same advice as somebody today or how to live a good life or, you know, those types of things. Like those advice is a little bit more timeless, whereas like the health advice seems a little bit different. Okay, so I'm going to like just be a little bit more abstract on this with you. So when I was depressed, I learned this lesson to observe my thoughts, not be my thoughts. And when I could observe my mind in action and it be like, hey, Brian, life is not worth living. Everything's hopeless. Everything sucks. You should probably kill yourself. And I could be like, oh, I'm not those things. That's just my brain throwing trash, like being a troll. That was like the most liberating experience in my entire life. And then I was like, oh, you know what? My brain is probably very similar to other people's brains. I probably shouldn't care what other people think either because their brain's probably just as fucked up as mine. Yeah. And that was like those two in combo have been the most empowering experiences of my entire life. And that's why I like Brooklyn is I don't trust my mind. I don't trust other people's minds. I would rather an algorithm work with scientific data and my body to manage me. And this is why I think it's so revolutionary. When we imagine being the future of being human, we currently think our minds are the master of the universe. And I think that's now a time past. Like we're in the last days of that being the case. And we're going to be better because of it. The thing is that we need an algorithm that is actually altruistic because today there are already algorithms that manage our life. It's like the Facebook algorithm or the Twitter algorithm or the video game algorithm or something like that. And they're designed maybe not to harm us, but they're not necessarily designed to help us. They're designed to keep us playing and keep us you know, hitting the slot machine over and over and over with the dopamine hits. So somehow I could understand why people don't trust algorithms because a lot of algorithms haven't done them well. And so you need this like altruistic algorithm that you can trust. So I do this thought experiment with these blueprint brunches I hold where the thought experiment is, okay, there's an algorithm, your algorithm is dedicated to you. It can give you near perfect health, 
the trade-off is you have to opt in, which means you go to bed when it says it tells you to go to bed, you eat what it tells you to eat. And like, would you say yes? Would you opt into it? And it's always fun. And I have a two and a half hour discussion with people on this topic. And we sort through all of the philosophical, moral, ethical dilemmas associated with that thought experiment. But to me, that's where we're at as a species in time and place. I think it's one of the most interesting conversations we can be having. And not to get too philosophical, but you could take it all the way up where like it should tell you who to marry and everything. It's a very easy path to get exactly there. Yep. And maybe it would actually result in better decisions. You know, people who have arranged marriages often are happier. Or there's other things to think about as well. well. I mean, so this is the thing, right? Like your podcast is on data. So I, when you reach a certain threshold of data quality and evidence and longevity, it's legitimately an interesting question to say where and when and how is the human mind and our preferences going to outperform algorithms? And what I think is actually going to happen, which I think is going to be funny, is we're going to fight this. We're going to inevitably go on this path. And then we're going to land in that place. And we're going to feel like we have just as much free will as we do right now. We're not going to realize that behind the scenes, like magic, this is all being run. And like our lives are supremely better. I love it. Okay. Super interesting. Now, you know, one of the things I know that you've got a lower body temperature, right? What does that measure? Like, why is that a good thing? I am on a caloric restriction diet. So I eat 2000 calories a day, 20% lower than my recommended daily allowance. Caloric restriction has some good evidence behind it as uh, slowing the speed of aging and a bunch of other things. My morning body temperature upon rising, taken through my ear, through a medical device, is around 95.9 to 96.6, like somewhere in that range. So I'm roughly three degrees Fahrenheit lower than an average temp. It's most likely just my metabolic adaptations from eating fewer calories in the day. Oh, interesting. Okay. Does that mean like you're cold more? Like you got to invest in sweaters and stuff? And <laughs> I don't feel it. Okay. Yeah. And like I'm speaking at a turn here a little bit because I haven't seen this evidence robustly. I'm peripherally aware that lower body temperatures associated with longer lifespans. Okay. Interesting. Is it associated with health? Like is it as healthier people are going to have lower body temperature? Like I'd never heard that before. I kind of read into what you were doing before. I don't know enough about the science. You know, women's bodies are different because of their hormone cycles and their temperatures are different. So I don't know enough to speak with this as an authority between males and females in my situation. I can say that my team was not surprised to hear my reporting that I had lower body temp. Okay. You keep saying in the morning because like during the day, there's just exogenous things that happen to move your body or a temperature around. That's right. Yep. Actually, it's a good point. I haven't done a temperature measurement to my body throughout the day. Okay, now I'm thinking of it. We have. We've seen, we've looked at various curves of how the body temperature changes throughout the day. It's a good question. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because when you think of what people measure, and I know some pretty insane people that are measuring all different things on their health and stuff like that, but like body temperature doesn't seem like, which seems like a relatively easy one to measure. It doesn't seem like the one I know that people are measuring. And it sounds like from our discussion that you want it to go down over time. And so that would be a relatively easy thing to check. But why aren't other people looking at that? Or are they? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. We're all, we also look at it not just from an effect of the metabolic activity, but we also look at it for any response, any therapies we do. So if sometimes these therapies can have the effect of you know, producing fevers. So I do it for just a general temperature check on the body as well. Like, is there anything going on that I need to be paying attention to? Yeah. And then how do you think of alcohol? Like there's been some back and forth whether... 
it seems like in the last, I would say, two or three years, alcohol is getting a much worse rap. Like 10 years ago, a lot of people were saying, hey, it's great to have some red wine. It's actually good for your health. And then it seems very recently that it's been very trendy among people who are trying to be healthy to like knock out alcohol altogether, et cetera. Like, how do you think about that? I eliminated all alcohol because I couldn't afford it from a caloric perspective. I have 2,000 calories. Every single calorie has to fight for its life for inclusion. And every calorie in the diet has a specific objective. There's not a single calorie I eat each day that's for enjoyment only. It has a specific objective. And so the three ounces of alcohol I did consume for a certain duration of time is 74 calories, and I just couldn't afford to spend it. It didn't provide the nutritional punch it needed to fill the 74-calorie slot. You weren't saying because it was bad for you or, you know, it was hurting your liver or making your sleep better. And also like for stopping eating at 11, it's kind of odd to have alcohol at 10 a.m. or something too, right? <laughs> well, I used to have three ounces of red wine with breakfast. It was such a delight and it was fine. I know if I have alcohol anywhere like 4 p.m. and after, it just wrecks my deep sleep. I'll cut my deep sleep in half or by 75%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I can't even sip it in that time. Now, you've said a few times that you don't want to eat for pleasure. Now, for most people, this would be a very tough thing for them to deal with. That is kind of like what people live for many ways is to eat and sometimes to have the ice cream cone and eat some really good pasta. Also, eating is communal. So there's something about being with other people and stuff like that. And so I don't see like people following you on that front in the short term, at least, right? What is your kind of advice for the more the masses? Yeah. So I would reframe my statement. It's not that I don't eat for pleasure. It's that we identify foods for their evidence-based value for the endpoint objective of slowing my speed of aging. Now, when it comes to my level of enjoyment with the food I eat, never in my life have I enjoyed food this much, ever. Even when I was in a situation where I could eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it, because I had that access, I was doled to the pleasure. Yep, that makes sense. I would wager that anybody listening to this, that if we could measure this, I would wager my biochemical stimulation patterns exceed theirs in joy in eating the food I do. Okay, interesting. But there's also this communal thing. You and I have had many dinner parties over the years and stuff like that. I guess if I'm having dinner with you at my dinner time, 6, 7 p.m. or something like that, you're going to be happy to be there, but you're not going to be eating, which is a little bit odd, right? <laughs> well, I actually do. Okay. I do make exceptions for social gatherings. So if we get together, I would not want to create unrest in the social group. And a person at the table who has an empty plate makes the whole group feel off. And so knowing the day is coming, I would say, okay, I'm going to save up 500 calories. I'm going to see if I can get a few steamed vegetables. They'll be on my plate and I'll eat it. My sleep will be just fine because I've saved up the calories and it's like that kind of food. Okay. But I definitely, I'm part of community. I'm in community. I want to be available for people. I don't want people to feel weird or odd. So I definitely make those exceptions to try to fit into cultural norms. Okay, got it. So if you're at home by yourself or whatever, then you can follow your protocol. But when you're at some sort of bigger family thing or with a bunch of friends or something, then you'll just plan for it ahead of time. Yeah, because it's, just, it's so funny. It's like, you know, if I don't eat, the social gathering cannot move forward. It's like everyone has to ask 50 questions about like why you're not eating. Totally. Yeah. Because it's weird, right? Yeah. It ruins the social experience. And so I, I don't want to derail the value of the gathering. I don't want to call attention to myself. And so I just try to play it cool, like just be among the norms so we can move on and have the time. We can spend the time how we want to spend it with each other. 
so I'm interested in like what some of the things you've changed your mind about recently. It sounds like alcohol is one of them. You used to have a little bit of wine with breakfast. You've changed your mind about that. What are some other things that you've changed your mind about with the data? You know, I don't think I would have believed me if I could time travel to myself and say, you could feel this good and be in this good of shape. I wouldn't have believed it. My boys are now 20 and 18 and we compete in everything, mountain racing, basketball, lifting, like everything. I am competitive with them on every single thing we do. I never would have imagined that'd be the case. So I guess I'm just really surprised if you measure, you get the data and you pair it up with scientific evidence, then you implement the protocol. It actually works phenomenally well, like more than I ever would have expected. Okay. Interesting. I have like a personal goal, which is to be the world tennis champion of people over a hundred. That's right. I remember you saying that. That's cool. I'm confident I can't reach the goal at my age today, but maybe at over 100, I'll have the advantages enough to do it. What are some of the health data, and maybe it's a societal health data, that you wish that we could track, but just like it's just too hard to get that data today? Because obviously, we're getting the data on you, which is great, but it would be better if we could get data on like broader sets of populations. I would love to understand something like, what is the temptation power in society? Like what level of temptation do people feel to do bad things? Like with myself, I reframed any behavior that increased my speed of aging. I relabeled it as violence. And violence is a strong word because we imagine people doing you know, physical altercations. I reframed missing bedtime is violence. So basically having an ice cream cone is violence in a way. Exactly. And so I reframed it and I know now how to achieve zero violence within me to get my speed of aging down to 0.69, which is about as good as I can do right now. And I think about this in the larger term of goal alignment. I'm 35 trillion cells. How could I goal align Brian Johnson, who's 35 trillion cells to a single objective, which is continued existence, which is what we're trying to do with AI and the world. It's like, I'm a microcosm of this thing. I would love to score where we are at towards zero biological violence. Okay, interesting. One of the things on self-control I think is hard is in some ways like having the one cookie is one thing, right? And it's very pleasurable to have like one cookie and I love chocolate chip cookies. It's very pleasurable to have that one cookie. But like the fourth cookie it's not pleasurable, but I still will do it. It's hard to stop. So the first one is like amazing and it's great and it's, it's so wonderful. But by the fourth one, just like it makes you feel bad. Your stomach's hurting. And you still do it. Yeah. In some ways you could say, okay, don't even have the first cookie. But like what I'm trying to do is just like, okay, how do I not have the fourth cookie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this these are legit problems about being human. Yeah. All right. Well, a couple of personal questions. You, know, you grew up in a Mormon household in Utah. How do you think of that upbringing influenced you as an adult? The most helpful thing was emerging from that bubble to realize I was in a bubble. This is like Plato's cave where I could imagine living out an entire life, not realizing that there are multiple realities and that if you can pull back realities like layers, you spend your lifetime trying to find the next layer of your obliviousness to reality. 
And so climbing out of the first bubble of Mormonism was my first exposure of like, oh, wow, like I can increase my sphere of conscious awareness by peeling this thing back. And it's put me on a lifelong journey to continually ask the question, what am I ignorant to right now? But in some ways, like if you just think of like, okay, general population, Mormon population, especially let's say in Utah or something like that, people live longer than normal. They seem happier than normal. They seem wealthier than normal. There's also like a lot of goodness to take from it as well. Certainly, it comes at a cost of complication. They're basically doing micro corrections of behavior. So by saying, for example, like there's morality of like, here's the rules of morality. And like watching porn is not a good rule of morality. If you engage in porn, you have to go through a pretty violent cycle of remorse and shame and confession. There's like this whole process of reconciliation that's not just with you, but it's the entire community. And so you develop all kinds of complicated psychological relationships with deviations from expectations on right and wrong. And they're so serious that it's if these infractions occur, you're risking your eternal soul. It's a pretty effective behavior modification engine, but it doesn't come psychologically cost-free. Is it that much different than the quote-unquote algorithm, listening to the algorithm and stuff? Like, Because sometimes people might do things on their own that, you know, might not be the best for them. But if they just listen to the algorithm, in this case, it might be, there could be different algorithms you opt into. But let's say you listen to a religious algorithm, you know, and you follow the protocols, and they're not all going to be correct. But just following the protocols of the algorithm might be better than you'll do on your own. A critical distinction is, I am not my behavior. So before, if I committed a certain act that was in violation to the ideology you were punished, like self-punished and God-punished and community-punished. And in this case, with this infraction with Blueprint, it's a biochemical process running its way through the course, and I'm just trying to correct for it. So it allows me to have separation from that behavior. Or you could say like the 8 p.m. Brian committed this, but the 8 a.m. Brian would never do this. Yeah, and like, you know, I understand Evening Brian. Evening Brian was saddled with all of the collective Brian's stress and problems, and he had fires at work putting out, like uh, kids had to be bathed, and like all the stuff. And I guess I am totally liberated from shame and guilt, all those emotions which were literally torment for me. I am now free of those. And so that's why I say, I guess maybe what answered your question before, like what surprises me, I don't think I ever could have imagined escaping that bubble of tormented psychological existence of the expectations that were put upon me and how I felt internally to now. Like I have never felt more expansive in my entire life. And so I, I really haven't done a good job capturing with words to your question. My existence right now is phenomenal, like beyond my ability to explain to you how amazing my life is. And it's not just like, oh, I have money, therefore it's phenomenal. It's like, no, like money doesn't solve psychological torture. No one escapes from that kind of thing. And I escaped it by approaching it with a systems perspective and hitting at the root of human suffering. Now, I follow you at Brian underscore Johnson on Twitter. I definitely encourage our audience to follow you there. But one thing I noticed recently, maybe as you've done it for a while, is you've changed your name to zero. Like, why was that name change done? A couple of years ago, with this quest I've been on, to try to map the future of human existence, I kept on running up against this limitation of my own intellect and creativity. I kept on hitting this wall of fog where I couldn't think and see through. And first principles thinking was not doing it for me. And I went to bed one night. 
I assign my brain a problem every night before I go to bed. And I said, like, let's think through this problem and come up with a conceptual framework on how to think about. Oh, sorry, just before you go to bed, you literally assign a problem and then you go to sleep and then you wake up and you're like, and then you look at the problem again and see how you did. It works every single night. Wow. Okay. I, th- I think I'm going to try that. That sounds really cool. Even the smallest things like, let's just say you go to bed tonight and you say, let me replay the conversation with Brian and ask him the one thing I really wished I would have asked him. Just like that really innocuous statement. And you know, your brain is different than mine, but I'll wake up and it will just drop into my brain or the morning, like, but it always lands and it always surprises me how it lands. And why do you think that is? Is it just because like it's that GPU in your brain and you're running your LLM model and it just like it takes like some time to process or something? Or why is that? I don't know. And when I'm working on a problem, I now understand how my brain works where I just have to sit and literally wait for my brain to show up with the problem. I can't think it through. I can't arrive at it by thinking at it. I just have to sit. And when I do that, it just like lands. I don't know when it's going to land. I don't know how it's going to land. But I changed my relationship with my brain where uh, thinking is not my path forward. It's letting things run and listening. So when it arrives, I can, I can capture it. Wow. So I was trying to find a new framework to understand how to think about the future that would help me overcome the limitations of first principles thinking. And I had a dream that night about zero principle thinking. And zero is a building block. So zero principle thinking is are the building blocks of reality. First principle thinking is understanding the interaction of those building blocks. So target hits the talent no one else can. Genius hits the target no one can see. So genius is zero principle thinking. Talent is first principles thinking. And so special relativity is a zero principle insight. Germ theory is a zero principle insight. It's from another dimension. And so I came up with this idea of zero principle thinking, and I've been kind of consumed by it as a way to understand our time and place. And my friends started calling me zero as a nickname, and it just stuck. So I'm a zero. How do you know when to dive into the zero or first principles? And how do you know when to just like trust the experts? So if you think about this, like if you were to make a list of the games you're playing in life, like for example, you have a podcast and you probably have metrics, like how many listeners do you have and how what's your growth rate? And so you're playing a game that is known to people. You have a podcast, you have guests, you grow it and you look at numbers. You're trying to basically be talented. You're trying to hit the target no one else can. A zero principle approach would be a game that no one's playing. But how do you know when to go into... For instance, like, I just trust blindly that the earth is round. Like, I've never actually proven it myself. I just trust that it is. Like, it might be flat. I don't know. But I'm just going to trust that it's round. And I'm just going to live my life that it's round. I'm not going to spend the time. I have the capability to do it. But I'm just not going to spend the time to prove that it's round. I'm just going to trust that it's round. Like, how do you know when to do that versus when to actually go all the way deep into something? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair, the earth is round is like an acceptable building block understanding that people have done enough analysis and data gathering that is like a pretty reliable situation. The earth is round. So that's the first principle kind of perspective. Like, so I would say with Blueprint, the zeroth principle insight I'm most proud of was this idea, the human mind has been the most formidable form of intelligence on planet earth for some time now. And we assume our minds are going to be continually the primary problem solver and form of intelligence in our lives. 
And Blueprint flips that on its head and it says, actually, our minds are the nemesis. They're not our primary problem solver. Our minds are the things that are leading us to our own self-destruction. It's better to find an alternative form of power and authority, in this case, my body, that's going to act as a better steward. And so it flips the entire construct of our existence to say, who warrants having authority to manage our lives? And that drops people into an, an existential despair where they think, if I'm not making decisions on what I'm eating and doing and thinking, I might as well not even exist. It just breaks their brain similar to, you know, is Earth the center of the universe or not? Do germs, are they these microscopic things that cause disease? Is there such a thing as a space and time relationship on top of Newtonian physics? It adds a dimension to reality that breaks current reality constructs. All right, this has been great. The last question we ask all of our guests, which you've already almost answered like six times today, but I'll ask you differently. Maybe you have a different answer is what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Everything. <laughs> all conventional wisdom. Okay. Literally everything that is being offered today, it has a high probability of being superseded by something else. We know this. We know this from history. And you can spend your life trying to be talented, or you can spend your life trying to be a zero. And my supposition is in the year 2023, with the where AI is at, the new generation of the next generation of explorers and epic individuals will be zero explorers. They will find genius level advancement. It won't be talented. It won't be winning talented games. You'll be finding brand new games no one's playing today. Oh, this has been awesome. Thank you, Brian Johnson, for being with us on World of Das. It's been a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Deaths is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Deaths. Check it out at flexcapital.com.